Welcome to Grid Connections. I'm your host, Chase Drum. On this podcast, we'll be exploring how our electrical grid is becoming the intersection between the next generation of electric transportation, new digital technologies, and grid infrastructure. Join me in exploring these topics with experts and leaders across the grid. In this episode, we meet with Chelsea Sexton, electric vehicle advocate and pioneer of the modern day EV. Chelsea was part of the original team that helped get GM's EV1 on the road and part of the group that tried to prevent its unfortunate destruction as shown in the documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? She's also one of the co-founders of Plug in America and is now a co-host on Fully Charged. Chelsea has been fundamental to the modern EV movement from her work on the EV1 to being on the board of Nissan's Global Leaf Advisory Board, and of course her ongoing work as a global advocate for electric vehicles. In today's episode, we discuss how far electric vehicles have come, what misperceptions they still face, and where they are headed. Today on Grid Connections, I'm honored to have Chelsea Sexton. One of the veterans of the EV space, she's been an advocate for quite a while. She was involved with the EV1 program. She was even a early founder of Plug in America. Now today, a lot of her work is advocacy and also a uh, consulting on the side. So I just want to say thanks for joining us today, Chelsea. Thanks for letting me crash your party. (laughs) Anytime. Um, You know, I think just for people... A lot of, I think the people who are going to be interested in this podcast will probably know who you are, especially if they have any interest in electric vehicles, um, especially with kind of your connection to the EV1 and who killed the electric car documentary, things that really, um, I think for a lot of people who might not have been considered traditionally automotive, uh, automotive nerds, I guess, for a better uh, better word. (laughs) would have kind of found out about this whole other realm of technology called electric cars. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I would just, I think just if you could kind of give a quick background to where, what you're doing today, and then we could kind of go through your evolution and your involvement in the space. Well, yeah, the fortunate part is today I get to wear lots of hats and I have somehow clumsied together a 25 year career (laughs) in something that I, (laughs) stumbled into at 20 years old and found out that I really deeply love more than I think most people are fortunate enough to find in their careers. So I'm a very lucky girl, but I do some consulting and mostly to help pay for the advocacy and other stuff I do. I write some articles here and there. I occasionally now work on a show called Fully Charged. I'm the U.S. presenter of that. So we make videos of um, new car reviews and different stories about EVs and energy and things like that. And you know, I, I stir pots wherever I can, and I still go to card meetings and live tweet wonkiness about policy. <laughs> Mostly get under people's skin. So, so it sounds like you're involved with EVs professionally and in your free time. Whether what is the thing you call free time? Yeah, I mean, there's okay. That, there's well, that notion of like about, if you yeah. love what you do, you never work. <laughs> and I get it, and I understand the notion of balance, but there's also some spillover that tends to happen when you like these things. And increasingly, it touches all of the adjacent activities around autonomous vehicles, but also we've been playing with utility companies for 25 years, and everything from time of use rates to now managed charging and rate-based infrastructure and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, none of this exists in a microcosm, and the newer thing that's fascinating to watch is the intersection increasingly with housing, which is not a new topic, 
but the various circular firing squads are starting to all figure out how they intersect a little bit more than maybe was thought of a few years ago, let alone six months ago. Right. And so when you say housing, you're kind of referring to just the availability for charging or can you kind of go a little more I mean, in depth urbanism on next to, to public transport. I mean, yeah. you know, density of housing next to public transport and that overall topic of urban areas and streets for people over cars. And increasingly, I'm having the same conversation a lot with advocates of other modes around, yes, there are many EV people that are car people. But there are many EV people, and I'm one of those, that is more, let's replace all liquid fuels with electrons. <laughs> right. More about... Doesn't matter how. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, I don't care if it's on a bike or a bus or a train or a car. I think we should replace all liquid fuels with electrons and have far fewer cars at the same time and increase quality of life and transit for everybody and so on and so forth. So the complexity of these conversations anymore is what actually I find the most appealing. And I work increasingly in international areas that some find many of the same challenges we have found before. And so to the extent I can help prevent skin knees, I love doing that. <laughs> Learn from us all the stuff we've done before, both good and bad. But also the new things, they come to me and go, yeah, but we have this thing that has never existed in any other EV areas. Oh, that's fascinating. Sign me up for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the work you're doing with Fully Charged. That's been uh, a really great way. I think also I've shared some of the clips uh, that you've been on and others from the show of just if people are trying to even just figure out like a crash course about how to get involved with EVs or maybe just some of the misperceptions out there. Can you share how you got involved with that? <laughs> Completely by accident. <laughs> now, Fully Charged is the what is now I think the largest online EV show about EVs and energy. And a lovely British man called Robert Llewellyn started it 10 years ago now, we just had the anniversary, and started making these clips. He's a professional actor by trade, so inevitably when everybody else was doing these super wonky, nerdy, hour-long podcasts, he was doing these 10-minute versions around pithy topics that we hear all the time. And that has evolved now to, I think they're up to six presenters in the UK alone. Uh, there's now folks coming in from China and Scotland and other areas, and I'm the one that occasionally <laughs> chimes in from the U.S. for about the last year or so. So, and and it's grown into live conferences and things. So it's it's a lovely community. Some things are super nerdy. One of the higher viewed episodes was about nuclear fusion, but we also do lots of like EV 101 or now autonomous vehicle 101. Sort of very basic. You don't have to have a PhD to find the right. thing. And some people like the visual over audio or, or reading something and shorter form. So some are five minutes, some are 20, but it's, it has a mix of things and a mix of personalities. And I am the one non-professional presenter in the bunch, which means everybody else's videos are so much better than mine will ever be. All I can do is show up and be sincerely nerdy and hope it works. No, I mean, I, I've been impressed with it. I mean, my background when it comes to recording is uh, Zoom calls and FaceTime. So the production quality. That's about my speed. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, no, and that's, uh, that I think kind of leads to like, how, how did you get this knowledge? What, how did you become the EV guru for the space? Ooh, that's a word we don't use. Like, if you say that word out loud, you're not one. Okay. <laughs> um, I actually, I got into it very much by accident. I, I graduated high school a little bit early, and I am what my mother would describe as pathologically self-sufficient, so I was heading off to college and trying to figure out how to pay for it, and I got a job at 17 as a car salesman. 
in a Saturn dealer. <laughs> and I had, I ended up getting one of those early cars. And so that was, I was a believer in the brand, but also it was really good money for a 17 year old and lots of downtime for homework. And a few years into it, my finance manager came to me and said, yeah, you know that electric car they announced a few years ago and you kind of like, and they're developing this job and you have to be an electrical engineer, but you're nerdy enough. I think you could fake it. And that led down the path of, well, okay, I still am going to go off and finish my degree in deaf studies, by the way, so I can be a sign language interpreter. But in the meantime, I'll continue on this car thing. And so I moved over to the corporate side of General Motors versus a franchise dealer and into electric cars. And so by then I was 20 after a few years of selling Saturns and I just fell in love with the technology. Some people love it for environmentalism or anything else. I was straight up nerd, but the part I loved the most was the torque. I was yeah. one of now many people who described themselves as car people, but didn't know it until I started driving EVs. But I completely was bowled over by the torque of driving that car for the first time in the back roads of Tennessee with very, very few cops and speed limits. And that was it. <laughs> The rest of it, the efficiency, the technology, that was all awesome too. But I came into it performance first, as many EV people do, and then just kind of stumbled forward from there and spent a half dozen years or so on that program. And it became very evident to us along the way that GM wasn't as into the EV thing as they initially were. And there's lots of tug of war in the industry, depending on who's in charge of a program. And so we kind of knew it was going, but we went through the phase of, oh, we can stop it and we can convince them and you know, we can do all these things. And ultimately they were bent on, on ending that program as the other automakers were in their era. And so then we've got into the phase of like, okay, if we can't stop it, we can at least make sure the, the story gets told. And so we did the funeral thinking right. everybody else would come cover it from a media perspective. And they didn't do it well. They mostly said like EV drivers bid fun, farewell and get ready for hydrogen. And we went, oh yeah, no. So the director of what became Who Killed said, all right, I'm gonna try to tell this story myself. and got a bunch of other people involved and continued to shoot it. I mean, it took five years for each, each movie to be made. <laughs> and eventually it was something to submit to Sundance. And we thought we'd burn copies for our parents and move on. <laughs> but it got into that film festival and Sony bought it. It hit theaters and it did well. And here we are. Well, I, I think it's, it's funny. Uh, two things that you kind of mentioned that story really stand out that uh, obviously you were very close to the EV1 in that, but it's, it's similar to what I hear about people who experience EVs for the first time. Yes. And there's no shortage of like YouTube videos of a Tesla or whatever smoke in a traditional car, but it's not until like they actually drive it that it kind of translates into like a cerebral and like a physical experience where like, it feels like you're on a roller coaster. Yes. Uh, and obviously the efficiency, all the other stuff is really cool. Uh, and I, I think that's a big, a big part of it too, is it like, if you're going to make a better product, it has to be like better all around. Uh, yeah. And, and it's really better enough. I mean, I, oh, true, true. I think we get hung up on that better all around thing a little bit, especially when it comes to road trips and fueling time. I think we get in our own way to some degree around some of that. And we risk forcing the future of mobility to behave exactly like past mobility. It needs to do the same things, but the, an example that comes up a lot for a lot of reasons is smartphones, and they do not have the call quality or the talk time of traditional landlines, but they do so many other things so much better. We just don't care. And EVs are largely similar to, to that exact thing. Even the urban ones, even the 100 mile cars meant for commuting, 
Of course, they're not the ideal cross-country road trip car. Most of us don't do that very often. Totally. But they are so much better 95% of the time that EV drivers don't care. And so well, they avoid it, getting hung up on the 5%. Exactly. And that's kind of what I'm more referring to because there, there are plenty of fringe cases totally. Yeah. Uh, but I, I find like I am, I'm even a person who drives quite a bit. I probably do a road trip once a month even. And even then it's like, I've gone maybe a few hundred miles and I stop anyway. So it's like in the whole scheme of like to get lunch or to just get right. out. Um, that I, I, I definitely understand that there are kind of these asterisk situations, but nine times out of 10 easily, it is quieter, it's faster, it's just yeah. less to deal with. And we have um, lots of multi-car households here. So the, I mean, yeah. right, the argument is not, let's put everyone into an electric car. We're trying to cross 2% of sales nationwide. Right, exactly. We need to quit worrying about the hardest cases at the moment and try to make more things available to more people that already know they want them. Oh, totally. And I, I think that uh, goes back to the second uh, thing I was going to mention with that, that story of the EV1 is kind of the funeral. It's like this yeah. kind of a crazy concept that someone would ever have for a product. A funeral. But that, yeah, a funeral of all things. And if you haven't seen the uh, documentary or you, I mean, you can even Google it, but it, it's just wild that. Yeah, it's on YouTube. We have no, like, go forth and, and pirate. Like, yeah. You know, uh, but but it, it's one of those things where so many people are like, oh, well, if there's actually people that enjoyed it that much, the yeah. problem will just solve itself. Like these automakers will do it. And then well, a few years went by. Agreed that has happened a little bit because there was the funeral and then there was a vigil and then people got arrested. Like there were multiple right. demonstrations of this passion. And to this day, Elon Musk cites that passion for that car as one of the things that inspired him to really push to get Tesla going. Because it was kind, it had been started by other people right. and electric cars had been done by other people, other startups, but he still to this day cites watching the vigil and the arrests and all of, you know, that month long thing we did out in Burbank, as much <laughs> as it was a stunt and we knew it, it was just trying to draw attention to the story. And it did in some of the best of ways watching what's happened since. So just as he champions every EV that's come since and, and, sees that as them standing on his shoulders to some degree tesla and this entire generation of evs stands on the shoulders of those that came in the 90s even though the the 90s cars weren't big in volume there were lots of lessons learned and they did get enough people indoctrinated to help carry it forward enough people exposed the technology to go oh my god this is kind of cool and i one of the things i would love to kind of know more about too is just like been uh having been on such like a, a really great experience being so involved with the project doing all these things back then to kind of get awareness having some success like uh, like you were saying like getting a documentary and all that at the same time i think a lot of people uh, obviously the passion comes through for you like a lot of people would just be like so frustrated and be hard for them to continue what what are some of the things like for you that in that experience that was I guess maybe so powerful that just kind of kept you to move forward when you're having a bad day and kind of see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, well, I'm a redhead, which makes me stubborn. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, yeah, I totally get it. And we all have bad days and we all have burnout. Um, but I mean, I, I am optimistic enough to see the potential of this technology. I'm also realistic enough yeah. to not buy into every single snake oil salesman that comes up, especially these days. 
But even back then, we had dozens of startups going, yeah, we're the next big thing. And it's like, oh, um, in the South, there's the bless your heart thing. I have, I look forward to seeing that. Right. <laughs> and I'm kind of doubtful of whatever it is that's being said, even if I champion the enthusiasm behind it. And that doesn't matter if it's a startup or Toyota. I mean, it, you know, we're to the point of show me, don't tell me. So press releases have very limited bandwidth in my world anymore. But I have learned over the years to care so much more about the table than what gets somebody to that table. We've learned to not, I mean, EVs were never an environmental thing, but it was always painted as that. I don't care if you come to it for that reason or performance like I did or efficiency, like some of the nerds out of Caltech. And I say that with love because I'm one of them the nerds, not the Caltech. I wasn't that smart. <laughs> but what gets people into the circle and into the experience is the important part. And EVs deliver so many benefits that it doesn't matter where you come into it. They do enough public good for enough people. Even if you don't own one, they clean the air for everybody. They drive down electricity rates for utilities for everybody. They have lots of common benefits that are useful well beyond the one dude who drives a car. <laughs> but that's what helps move all of this forward is the overall good for well-being for everybody. So we're obviously been kind of focused on EVs, but as we've kind of, uh, you mentioned, I kind of alluded to already, there's so many other systems that when you start thinking about it, that's really interesting that EVs kind of connect to. So Obviously, people can't take it for granted, but cars, you go fill up at the gas station. With EVs, yeah. there's the electrical component of going to just plug in the wall. And from there, you kind of run into some of those things you're talking about when it comes to efficiencies. What, I mean, um, obviously, you got involved from it from the car standpoint, but like, and you even mentioned, like, there's just some of these rabbit holes that popped yeah. up that really kind of threw you for a loop. What? Is there one in particular that's like still to this day or of all the ones you've experienced really stands out as being one you just did not expect to deal with? I didn't expect to deal with the questions around EVs being struck more by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some of those that are like weird consumer questions. Certainly the long tailpipe theory is probably the broadest and most enduring one that we've all collectively had to deal with, which is completely invisible to the general public, but to anybody that cares and gets involved in these issues, like we're all accused of all EVs run on coal, but all every other kind of car runs on, you know, fairy dust and rainbows. <laughs> and even the pitting of hydrogen versus EVs, which is the, the weirdest holy war in the history of transportation, probably. But hydrogen is only made from electricity or natural gas, but the electricity for hydrogen only comes from solar. The electricity for electric cars comes entirely from coal. Don't you know these things? And how dare you root for them? <laughs> There's lots of various conspiracy theories and vested interests that have a point of view. That, that's actually really funny because I remember uh, the, this was a few years ago, but I was, I was giving my grandmother a ride in an electric car and she was just blown away by how quiet it is, how like everything, uh, yeah. well, of course it had a touchscreen in it. So she thought that was so cool. But it's funny you mentioned, because she she's the only person that's brought this up, is does it get shocked by lightning? And being kind of a halfway sarcastic person, my immediate reaction is like, yeah, but that charges it faster. <laughs> and she was like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, grandma, no, it doesn't actually do that. But um, also going off of that, like when you, 
with with hydrogen, I think that that's an interesting one that gets brought up in uh, Who Killed the Electric Car. One of the things that I've been hearing a lot about, at least here in Oregon, is what they call renewable natural gas, I think. Yeah. And it's kind of the similar path of mind, like, like oh, it'll, it'll cancel itself out. Right. And I mean, the cynic or a lot of conspiracy theory people might say, like, of course, that's just the oil industry trying to push their thing. Um, why, why do you think that like some of the lessons that could be learned from hydrogen, especially what's shown in uh, the documentary, which I believe is from 2003? Six. Yeah. Six. Yeah. But, yeah. So it's almost 15 years old now. Almost. I mean, yeah, it'd be 17. I, I mean, it's, it kind of highlights just what didn't work uh, and you're starting to see like. Yeah. I and I mean, in fairness, that film was made at a moment in time. And ironically, Bill Reinert, who represented Toyota in that first film, became very, very pro-hydrogen. I mean, yeah. he was a hydrogen rep that was kind of skeptical and then became very pro and now he's retired. But uh, many of these technologies have their specific application that could be useful. And I've watched this more recently where hydrogen kind of backed off for a while, but it's had a resurgence in the last few years, but kind of differently. So now the conversation is less around passenger vehicles, thank God, more around, you know, medium heavy duty vehicles, vehicles that are heavier and bigger and harder to electrify with batteries alone might have a case for hydrogen. That's entirely true. It might have a case for that. And certainly we're seeing some hydrogen buses and things be tried. So there's a little bit of tension between the, oh my God, hydrogen is the thing you guys have promised us for 25 years and used as a reason to not move forward on other fronts. But at the same time, it's not, the technology should not be held responsible for poor examples of implementation, regardless of what that technology is. So just as EVs shouldn't be held responsible for certain startups in our world, hydrogen shouldn't be held responsible for certain implementations of that. So we can't dismiss it out of the bag, but we have to get much more focused on a right tool for the job right. <laughs> mindset. And certainly where there are economic or other levels to pull, what is our priority in any moment in time, given the other circumstances around it? So are hydrogen buses better than electric buses? Is the infrastructure easier to deploy? Do each one of them work differently in certain places? All, the answers are yes to all of the questions, but picking and choosing the right combination is really the point, not forcing the, you know, if you only have a hammer, that's the answer to every nail. And that's kind right. of how these things have happened so far. We all have to have a bit more humility on what works best and how best we move forward collectively. Right now, where do you like what areas in particular about EVs or like whether that's the battery technology, charging infrastructure um, that I think really you've seen the most traction with? Is there any area in particular? I see traction in different places, but I tend to focus on places that others are not. So I, I care less about battery technology. Not not at all, just less. That is not my focus. And I think too much has been put on the cost of battery parity compared to internal combustion or what's the next battery. What we know is that there are lots of electric vehicles with all the current technology, whether it's bikes or scooters or cars or buses or trucks, et cetera, that work in a lot of cases. Right. And the single biggest thing preventing deployment of those 
is lack of product, lack yeah. of vehicles, lack of variety of vehicles, lack of geographic distribution of vehicles, too much in the carb states only, or even just California within those carb states. So battery cost parity and battery technology and energy density and all those things are lovely fun things I'm happy to nerd out about, but it's not where I spend my time because it's not even within the top five of problems <laughs> that I see <laughs> facing EV deployment of any kind of transportation today. It, it all helps to move forward on that, but more more availability, more awareness, better marketing, that's number two. <laughs> Crappy dealers, number three. Infrastructure is probably number four, although some of these are parallel issues. We need to work on several of them at a time. And so you, there's some really obvious deployment things that are prominent before you get to some of the more component-oriented problems that may exist, but just aren't what I specialize in. <laughs> right. So, I mean, um, when it, it do you think a big part of it really is education is it kind of people are stuck in their existing ways like with dealerships and utilities they've kind of had something that's works they don't want to change or lots is education and, and yeah. people can be stuck in their ways but what's interesting is the last we'll say 15 years since that first movie came out we've been running around and I, and I have done, I mean, I am naturally very, very shy and very, very introverted. So a stage is not my happy place, but <laughs> that movie put many of us more into the spotlight than we would imagine. And so I've been running around since with, with the films, cause we've made a sequel and just generally speaking on the topic and writing about the topic and stuff. And the thing that most consistently comes through is how often we heard and continue to hear, I didn't know electric cars were possible. Right. Wherever you are, across the U.S., but around the world as well. I didn't know it was possible. So the industry tends to blame the consumer. When we see demand, we'll build electric cars. But people can't demand or even gently ask for what they don't know is possible. No, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what totally... Condition to believe is bad. So the second thing is always like, well, even if I know they're possible, I think of them as either, either a golf cart or a milk float, depending on where you are in the world. And so you still come down to that first test drive, as you describe, and everybody's universal response, whether it's a Nissan Leaf or a Tesla is, oh my God, it's just like a real car. Right. Yes, <laughs> but until they have that experience, nobody believes that's true. And so there's this multi-stage awakening process that happens. And now we're in the conditions of nobody wanting to go test drive cars. Well, that's, that's what I was just about to ask you. With things kind of opening up, maybe closing down yeah. again, TBD, I guess. Uh, what are some other ways? Uh, I, I know you've worked with Jeff Allen over at 4th and there's yep. been webinars and stuff they've done. But are there any other kind of recommendations for um, getting that kind of awareness and engagement for people if they can't sit in the car these days? Yeah, I mean, I, we all have been doing many, many more, more webinars, and I think that's been largely very, very cool on, on a variety of fronts, including those of, of us in the industry that just have access to more information than we otherwise would have had hours for in the day, especially yeah. because <laughs> we of them are available later to watch at 3 a.m. when you can't sleep. Um, <laughs> not that I do that. But of course not. <laughs> I think also we're, well, I'm a known insomniac, so that's not really news. But we're starting to give more thought, I think, to ideas that had come up before around um, things that can be done by apps, things that can be done more virtually. And there have been a couple of very cool sort of virtual test drive apps over the years. 
and largely dismissed at the time because you can just go to a local ride and drive event. And, but camera technology and app technology, lots of things have, have come along enough that you can kind of recreate lots better virtual experiences than existed 10 years ago when the first right. cool things were happening that we were seeing. And they're still cool to me in concept, but we can do better than that. So I think we're exploring more of those things, but also the caution that I tend to, to dish out a lot these days is it's too soon to assume what everyone's going to do going forward. And yeah. certainly the U.S. has maybe not done as great a job as we'd like in containing all of this. However, we have to ca also caution against a poll in March dictating life for a year. Right. And everyone that's kind of going, I'm never climbing in a public transit thing again, is me. I mean, I get it, but consumers are terrible predictors <laughs> at what people actually do versus sentiment at the time. And where places have done much more recovery, I actually have spent a lot of time in New Zealand in the last few years. And they've done interesting things on EVs, but I've, we've all watched their recovery with COVID as well. And an interesting data point for them was how quickly transit engagement came back 75, 80%. And it took like three weeks. So mm -hmm. once things were sort of contained, even a few weeks ago, people started to kind of go, okay, yeah, I'm gonna try this again. And, and right. same thing as we, as we think more about what's the actual effect of masks versus touching, like where, what are the real risks? And as we start to understand this as a spectrum, and as more things come out, come out about nanoseptic materials that sort of disinfect themselves, whether it's scooter handles or bus seats or whatever it is, we have to not assume that what we're seeing today is going to be what we see forever and acknowledge that there will be some progress. So we have to be somewhat flexible, but also not overly risk averse until we have more data. Well, and uh, one of the other things you mentioned too is signage. Yeah. And I, I think I, it's really interesting because that's a big thing. Like a lot of EV advocates are always saying signage, signage, signage. And I think it's valid, but do you think advertising is more powerful than signage? I mean, it's, it's one thing when you're driving down the road, uh, but I even bump into people as crazy as these days where they'll say, it's, it's not as common as it used to be, but like, I don't get why, like they're in the, uh, Tesla's in the news all the time now because they're market cap. And people are like, I don't get why Tesla's worth so much. They just make hybrids. And you have to say like, no, they, it's kind of a knowledge thing once again. And obviously Tesla's kind of gotten it figured out. But you look at a lot of these other valuation is a whole different conversation. Oh, totally. Totally. I'm not, I'm not saying it's valid, but it's, it's at least it's starting a conversation because whether it's that or uh, everything else that they're in the news for, um, I think that's just exp uh, exposing people who might, this might not have been at the top of their. Absolutely. I mean, know. Tesla gets credit for lots of things. And I mean, I'm one of those people that's, on the balance and often called a hater because I don't give them credit for all things for all time. Like they right. were the one that came up with the notion of an EV and were the only ones that ever sold them. I'm not, I'm not that kind of super fan, but they get credit for lots of things. And among the stuff they get the most credit for in my book, regardless of how many cars they've sold is the general awareness effects and the general aspirational effects where folks that may not have thought about an electric car before, saw a roadster or a model s or something that was completely out of their price range but it got them to start thinking about an ev at all and maybe starts with a leaf or a bolt or something that is deemed more moderate <laughs> not quite tesla caliber but 
per Elon's philosophy that he espouses, who cares? Like the first biggest step is for anyone to get something with a plug. The data shows they only go more electrified from there. So the balance I strike quite often, we all have our subjective favorites with different plug-in cars. And I'm a girl that thinks there's still value in some plug-in hybrids, good plug-in hybrids. But if someone walks up to me and says, I bought the one that gets nine miles, <laughs> right. I will never shame them because good for them. They got, they got the thing that worked for them and hopefully they love it. I will absolutely challenge their automaker to make them a better car. But that's the balance is welcoming all the drivers and the users, fleets and otherwise into the fold while challenging industry <laughs> totally. to, to do better by them. And Yes, Tesla supplies lots and lots of sort of the awareness side. On the signage versus advertising, I think it's two different topics. I'm, I'm a girl that's totally. beating the signage drum a lot. And the specific lesson is because is an infrastructure lesson. And so from a signage perspective, since the EV1 days in the mid-90s, we kept hearing, we need more charging, we need more charging. And at the time, GM was literally paying for half the public charging. <laughs> so it was always a 50-50 co-op with, sort of the state of California or Arizona, wherever we were putting it. So that was important to us to understand. And what we eventually did discover was that people are not used to looking for chargers and they don't look the same as gas pumps. And there's no uniformity between the different types and companies and all that. So that folks were driving past chargers all the time and just didn't know they were there. And so some uniform signage, road, you know, wayfinding signage, like we see all the time of rest stops. And there are some blue EV charger this direction thing along freeways. More of that was needed in that signage was much cheaper than chargers. <laughs> so well, there one of the things I've always just kind of pushed back on that, though, is the idea that um, it, it kind of goes back to like the, the idea of like, if you really want to get people in the EVs, it just has to be a much better product. And one of those areas I've always thought, and this is something Tesla's done, I believe Mercedes, once again, the higher tier brands, but what's really cool is they essentially, the routing thing will show you where there's chargers within your range on a map. And, and that's more that's starting to happen for sure. Right. But I mean, if we're honest, that's hindered by the lack of uniformity in- Total, and that's, that's, that's a whole nother thing. Like and that. That, that I do agree with. Yeah, but it, it creates and, it and creates that better is, product experience versus, oh, here's the, uh, I'm it's on empty. And then you're just kind of, it's a different kind of range anxiety when you're going down the road. Right. Uh, well, to just those, pull over. In, in fairness, those things have existed. And yeah. well, because years ago, we couldn't get the automakers to standardize on the connector. We started getting the charging companies to put both on every charger right. so that we didn't have to worry about that quite so much. So everybody can use an EVgo charger or a charge point charger and Electrify America or whatever. There's still is all the competitive networks and that's yeah. a challenge. Uh, but I'm less worried about the EV drivers in this case because they all have apps and not all, but a couple of those apps are awesome where you can filter by exactly which networks you wanna see, which connectors you wanna see, pay versus free. There's some granularity there. So folks have a lot more access to figuring out their own road trips. And I mean, Apple just announced last week that they I was were going to say, yeah. that. And Google already had, and yes, yeah, so some of that is already happening. From the signage perspective, it's not for EV drivers. It's for potential EV drivers. Those people don't have the apps yet. <laughs> right. And they're not used to looking for chargers. And so those are the ones that are saying, I don't see any chargers around, therefore why would I consider an electric car? 
those are the ones that we need to have some very consistent wayfinding signage for. <laughs> so they kind of start to see, oh yeah, there are some charges around and they're in the places I tend to go and maybe this is feasible for me, which is a separate discussion somewhat from the overall awareness thing you were getting at. I mean, I think we get way too high-minded with awareness versus education versus marketing. It's all the same thing and utilities yeah. especially in part because they're precluded from a regulatory perspective. They don't like to talk about marketing. They like to talk about education, but it's all at the end of the day, the same activity. And we all have to get more comfortable with what is actually marketing, but what is effective? Talking about EVs in a way that resonate with people can be defined by any of those terms, but it is more emotive than we tend to talk about it. So cars are an emotional product. <laughs> We tend to try to strip them down as appliances when it comes to EVs, but at the end of the day, it's still the emotional experience that drives people to it. And to some degree, even with bikes or scooters or, or public transport or something else, there's still another benefit, another emotional experience. It's time to play on my phone or get more work done or whatever that is facilitated by that different mode and the electrification of it. Now that we've clearly solved that problem. All the things. We've yeah. done all the things. <laughs> what, uh, are, are there anything uh, in particular that you think uh, either automakers could help with or uh, like governments that they could do to really kind of bring this awareness, make it easier? Whether I know originally one of the things like in California, for example, is HOV lanes was kind of yeah. like, 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 oh, I don't care if it's an electric car or not. I just want to use the HOV lane. And living in Oregon, we have like, I think maybe two miles in like the entire state of HOV lanes. So oh I don't God. think that's going to work here. Right. Or some, a lot of like a lot of the Midwest states. But I, I'm just curious if there's any kind of ideas you've ever heard um, that is kind of like more of a carrot than stick incentive method that could really help kind of yeah. put this idea in other people's heads when they're looking to buy their next car. Well, automakers could help by wanting to be successful with, it, with EVs. How is that all? Not just doing them for compliance reasons. Um, <laughs> and some do, some don't, but there's a range. And I would say collectively, the automotive industry is still fairly ambivalent about wanting to do this at all. And so that manifests in marketing activities, in making what we tend to term compliance cars. So only available in certain states, maybe all the carb states, but often just California, something like that. If I had a magic wand tomorrow, I'd fix the, the federal tax credit in a bunch of ways, not just lifting the cap as is currently, currently proposed, but it wouldn't apply to vehicles that are not available nationwide. And it would be a rebate. And it, I mean, it would have an MSRP cap on it because we shouldn't be subsidizing $120,000 electric, $120, electric cars for individual families, things like that. So there's those harder, less politically popular conversations yeah that should happen if what we really want to do is move things forward in a, an economically effective way. But you're right that many of the incentives are not the financial ones. And we started the financial incentives way too early. The most effective incentive we ever had was the HOV lane one, but even today in many places, it tends to be ones that offer convenience, access, privilege over financial incentives. It's the more emotional ones, really, yeah. 
And so HIV lanes is one example, but even, I mean, what seems like kind of silly things like free parking at parking meters, it wasn't the I save 25 cents or now a dollar an hour or whatever it is. It was the not having to fish for quarters. <laughs> it, it was, was the privilege. And the well, someone who's gotten a few parking tickets, it almost becomes the spite. Like, I don't even want to deal with it. Right. Just, yeah, yeah. Right. And so it's the convenience of not having to deal with it more than I saved $2 today. Spite <laughs> car purchase, just not having to deal with uh, right. parking anymore. Yeah. And so there are those types of things as well, because a lot of cities and, and counties and sort of more localized regions kind of go, I can't do a $5,000 incentive and therefore I'm kind of out of the conversation. And that's not true at all. Right. But it does require a little bit more creativity to go, what's within our power? What would actually resonate? How could we offer some convenience? But at the same time, make it equitable. I mean, the point is not to just give incentives to rich people who buy Teslas. <laughs> it is to, to promote all EVs. And in particular, what I like is the renewed focus on a more complex conversation that needs to be had around used cars and incentivizing them, but also figuring out a way to certify their used battery quality and offer warranties and things like that, where you know folks are completely excited to buy a $10,000 used Volt or Leaf or whatever, but I kind of want to know what its actual condition is. And we've had this of Nissan dealers resetting battery gauges and things. So we have to figure out a way to let the public more, more validly trust <laughs> some of those vehicles when they buy them from unknown sources. Well, I think that's also a really powerful way for people who aren't like, once again, it's people who aren't traditionally looking at EVs are now kind of in the conversation because I have two really good friends of mine that I grew up with who they, they, they know I'm like the big electric car nerd of kind of the friend group. And they're like, okay, the stuff Tesla does really cool. That's the kind of car I would get if I'd get one, but it's too expensive. It's, it doesn't make sense. And so it does kind of fall into that used car thing. It's just like, okay, when are these prices going to drop to a point where it's like halfway affordable in a used right. car market? And, and we have to, look, I, re, I appreciate it. I think what you bring up about the battery degradation and other things that people might not think about um, is just making it a much more approachable and feeling more comfortable about buying a used yes, car. That's for sure. And, and especially these days, these days in the before times versus the now yeah. time. I mean, I think there's more, opportunity to re-examine shared models and access over ownership. I mean, I, I hear everything that says, I don't really want to get in an Uber and I'm worried about germs. However, from an economic perspective, everybody, household, company, et cetera, is dealing with different budgets than they were six months ago. And everyone's starting to rethink, what do I actually have to spend on what? And work from home will not continue forever. But there are quite a few people that will do much more working from home, even if not exclusively. And so therefore their transportation needs will change. Poorer people, people of color will still have to climb on public transit. So there's still a mix, a mosaic of things that we have to address. But the notion that we're still trying to sell full-time cars to individual families potentially needs to change. <laughs> right. Whether they're used cars or new cars. And so we have to start rethinking subscriptions, car share, ride hail, all of those things that provide certain types of transportation in the minority of time that I need them, but not all the time. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, I think it was called Reach Now and a lot of these kind yeah. of, um, I used to use that service all the time in Portland. They had a few of them that were fully yeah. uh, the BMW i3 EVs. 
And then it seems like that business model was just, I mean, kind of go figure, go put out $40,000 cars brand new and let people rent them by the minute. Doesn't always pay yeah, for itself. And, and Daimler tried it with car to go. And the, yeah, and the, yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the, and we have Blue LA here and there was Blue Indy that has kind of shut down with little French electric cars. There have been various versions of trying them. And so on one hand, I have long advocated that we should learn the things that are to be learned from those. Like, let's not pretend those were all perfect implementations. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, while I caution reading too much into these times and this what is still fairly nascent data, some business models that would not have made sense a year ago or even six months ago might make sense now, whether it's forever or for a couple of years. But we have to not assume that the way everything's always been done is exactly the way we should go forward. And if really, if that's your only reason for doing anything, it's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> yeah. You should have better reasons than because it's the way we've always done it. So we have to be a little bit more flexible in that, in the offering up of first experiences, but also in the offering up of access to transportation of all kinds for all groups. Do you think what's going to lead that is going to be maybe public transportation? I mean, when you look at kind of like the whole pie, when it's like actual, as you're saying, like just making that shift to like green electrons, do you think it's going to start with public transit? And the reason I, and I'm, I'm not saying it won't, I'm, what I think is interesting is looking at like new car sale data over the last few months, it's still way less than uh, people thought it would be. Uh, or um, it's obviously way lower than originally projected before this all happened. But one of the kind of positives is electric vehicles globally uh, have been selling still at a pretty strong rate. And it might be the idea that that's kind of exposing people more to it. Uh, or, or do you really think, or do you think there's going to, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think there's going to be any big takeaways from coronavirus as like, okay, an electric based future isn't as crazy or as impossible as we thought it was just a few months ago? I think there will absolutely be takeaways. Yeah. I don't think we're smart enough to have hit upon them. I think what we've seen so far can generally be explained. So yes, EVs haven't been hit that hard so far. EVs in 2020 were never gonna be that great. The people that are most likely to buy a new EV were the least impacted by coronavirus. (laughs) There's some other things that sort of suggest against reading into the fact that, yeah, in the last few months, EVs have still sold. You know, the, the, um, federal tax incentive for the Chevy Bolt ran out for sure, like the last little bit ran out at the end of March. And so there was still that little rush to try to get that last $1,800 and, and things like that. So there are some sub points that kind of read into what we've seen in the last few months. And therefore, we need more time before we draw hard conclusions around what's been happening. We might find that the data we've seen informs a larger trend, but we haven't seen it yet. And EVs were never going to get really interesting, especially in the U.S., until 2021 or two. Like, there just weren't that many new unveilings. Yes, Model Y, but Model Y to some degree will also supplant Model 3 and some other Tesla volumes. Volkswagen and some of the higher volume manufacturers don't really start to launch for at least another year or so for the U.S. ID3 will come here. Yes, there's lots of other smaller programs that will launch. But when we talk about volumes of things that could really start affecting more of the hockey stick we all want, that was always going to be a couple of years out. So it's too soon to say how much that will be affected. In some ways, if this was going to happen, this was a decent year to have it happen because it has potentially less impact because things were never going to be that fast. 
but we also need to not get complacent. It's the thing I have railed against for, for some years now where everyone kind of goes, yeah, EVs are done and solved and they'll take care of themselves and we can go all go off and play with autonomous or something else. And that has never been the case. We're still not there yet. It's still kind of a sophomore junior slump. We still have to dig in and work hard. Do you think with some of that uh, slump, there there's kind of obviously some stigma. It's kind of like, oh, it's a rural thing yeah. or a city. Uh, it's a something you could use in the city. It's not really uh, made for country living and stuff like that. But you you alluded to all these other cars. Well, yeah. they're not really all cars. A good portion of them are trucks. Yes, I I, yeah, I do love yeah. them. No, and I, I know what <laughs> yeah. you meant, but do you think that that actually might be really, if like Ford is actually coming out with an electric F-150, everyone, so. yeah. I hope so. No, you're right. In fairness, I say cars about like all things passenger retail stuff. Um, yes, there are more trucks and SUVs coming. That is a spectacular thing. I hearken back to my point about the biggest obstacle is lack of vehicle variety. We need yeah. more larger things, more you know, different capabilities, different prices, different performance, all of that, for sure. I am super excited about some of the things coming, and in particular, kind of the truck category. I think some of them are probably more viable than others, but nevertheless, <laughs> I hope, I, I mean, Ford has been kind of mile wide and inch deep for like 15 years. So we all are so cautiously optimistic about Ford. They're making all the right noises. And yet we're all a little bit sketchy about trusting the press release right. <laughs> on things like volume. So yes, please Ford, make me very happy. I look forward to that. Um, I think Rivian has done amazing things in galvanizing some passion around that space. And yes, I know Tesla and Cybertruck, but while they have their super fans, I think it is super helpful to also have a much more traditional looking, another company in general. So, you know, totally. there is not a single company or model that's the right thing for everybody. So, and we haven't seen another startup that's galvanized any passion in quite some time until Rivian. So I'm very happy to see them come along and with a very different approach because again, variety and the partnership with Ford and Amazon and so on that will hopefully help keep them a little bit more substantial for, you know, while they work through the inevitable startup stuff. Yeah. I think Rivian's a really interesting one. Uh, and what, what it's good to hear is like, they had a, it sounds like they had some layoffs, but it wasn't any, everyone had that. Right. Uh, whereas like there have been, it sounds uh, like Biden, I think just may have gone bankrupt and a couple others who were kind of more around that same uh, mark where they they've had all this money. They pretty much almost have a built product. Yeah. But it sounds like of the ones that are in that phase, it's really uh, Rivian, maybe Lucid, uh, which I'm still not a big fan of the name of it. But Rivian seems to be the one that also kind of has that niche of where they're going after of actually building uh, trucks that people could actually live with. They're very beautiful, very well loaded, a little on the expensive side. But um, I think for what they do, they're, they're actually pretty good buys. What I, going, going back, you said it, so we got to talk about it a little bit, the Tesla Cybertruck. Yeah. While obviously it's its own thing, it's shocking. I know, once again, the thing I think that's kind of cool about it is I know people who are super conserved contractors to millennials that have like driven only VW Golfs that have reservations for it. Whether both of those guys that will actually go through it is a whole nother thing. But that is also where kind of how Tesla kind of led in the uh, 
sedan space and some little work in SUV. Seeing them go into the truck space, I think is finally a bit of a, bit of a punch to Ford and like GM to like finally start getting in where they make all their, their money off of. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah. All, all the things about the cyber truck, whether you want to say yay, nay, or whatever, honestly, the most impressive thing that I don't think gets a lot of talk is its price. If they can actually execute upon it for its price, especially in the base version and the range, it's pretty impressive. And then obviously you got the top one that's coming out, but even like in, like when you get in the F-350s and the trucks of the world, it's not really that different. Uh, and right. yeah. Well, so- it's, it's a cattle, uh, to me what it is, is it's not like completely new and it's obviously Tesla being Tesla, but it is a bit of a, I think Rivian also was getting this conversation started, but to see Tesla kind of go in there also really is a catalyst for these traditional truck manufacturers to kind of stop dragging along and actually finally maybe the Ford F-150 does come out as an electric here right. in a couple of years after all. And I'm one of the people that actually doesn't think the F-150 should be pure electric. <laughs> okay, tell me more. <laughs> I think they should do a plug-in hybrid, but... Well, I think that's what they announced with I, this new generation. Well, I don't know, I don't know the range. They've been but... super nebulous about all of it. So okay. all things forward is like, we'll wait and see what actually happens. I, I think right. Rivian has done more to truly challenge... GM, Ford, Chrysler, it's, it's a closer hit. I think yeah. Tesla, I mean, I, I can like, again, I completely understand the contribution Tesla made. I know the truck has galvanized lots of people. It's a very different approach. I like that there are two completely different approaches. I look forward to seeing them hit the price they've announced. I do not yet give them credit on that particular front if only because they have never hit a price target on any previous vehicles. So why should I automatically assume and give them preemptive credit for doing it on this one? You know, in their defense though, <laughs> not to seem like I'm always on their side. I do have, I mean, it's, it's a big asterisk, but I do have a friend, one of the few people that actually got the $35,000 model three, where it's like super stripped down. It's like a completely off the menu sure option. I have a friend is really making the case you're trying to make here. I'm just saying it's, it's, it, right, it exists. It's, it's not I, common by any means. I'm not going to defend no, it. it just, I expect the same yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. To the, just like the $49,000 original Model S to the extent it exists. Yeah. I, you know, we, one of the things with the Tesla, devil's advocate is well, fine, and then that is completely fine. <laughs> yeah. I would rather have the complex conversation than the super fan versus super hater conversation because none, neither of those are, are significant groups of people. But I am often cautious around the double standards for Tesla. There are points at which they do great things and therefore should get some grace on other stuff. Yeah. There is also the points at which I kind of constantly ask, would we accept this from anybody else? And if this is their sixth vehicle, probably. <laughs> right. And still the price, the base price they promise has three asterisks and is five people. Would we accept that from anybody else? It, th those are the, starts of, the sorts of standards I start to apply. But I like the difference in philosophy in that the Cybertruck is is very much Elon's fever dream. Yeah. Here's this thing that I have designed with very little customer input that I just think you guys will want and need and I've decided on your behalf. 
Rivian is very much a much more traditional looking truck. And they're the ones running around the country going, give us thought and input and features you'd like to see. And it's, it's more like the Saturn of yeah, yeah. truck makers, kind of. And obviously I come from that world. So I find that useful in its own way. It's not that one is better than the other, but they are both incredibly different. And I like that both approaches are in the market and that two very, very different aesthetics are, it, are coming to market. Neither of them are in it yet, but both of them are pretty close. And so that, that's only a good thing for those of us that want to see the market grow. What Ford and GM and the others do, I mean, GM's already doing the Hummer, which is not really like either one of them. Also, I mean, the main questions around GM for all of the vehicles they've announced, and one of the last things I did in the before times was to go to their EV day. I was a little surprised to be invited, but it was very fun. <laughs> I appreciated the opportunity. But while they have lots of vehicles, I think will actually resonate with lots of the market, the volume and distribution and things like that are big open questions for me. So when I went, a bunch of their PR guys kind of took me aside at various points and were like, we're going to convince you tomorrow when we show you our dozen vehicles. And of course, my response was always very similar. I don't need to see your vehicles to trust that you can build good ones. You only ever had. Like most of the EVs we've ever seen have been fundamentally decent. We subjectively like one versus another, but there's not really any EVs built by an incumbent manufacturer that we go, oh my God, I'm so sorry you got that. Yeah. That's terrible. So, you know, convincing me you can build a decent EV truck is not really the mission here. <laughs> convincing me that you can get behind it and want to market it and want to sell the socks off of it and all of those other things are the mission for you when it comes to people like me. Other people are happy to see trucks on the stage and, <laughs> and that's fine. Right. But it's the same thing with Ford and all of the others. Like, show me, don't tell me that it's not just I can build a decent one thing but I want to build 50,000 of those things in year one and sell them nationwide. That's what will impress me. <laughs> Let's say they do build them in yeah. one to 20 years. Where do you think the disconnect then becomes? Is it because going back to the Rivian and the Tesla thing, uh, what, what they've both, I believe Rivian's done this for everything is they've also kind of gone away from the dealership and done more of a direct to uh, purchaser conversation. And same with Tesla, whereas Ford, GM are kind of locked into these existing dealership contracts. What kind of education or things in place? I mean, you alluded to a little bit earlier with the used car stuff, but do you think that's going to be kind of the biggest hindrance for a while? Or is there just eventually a way that they can kind of get around that for getting that in front of consumers? I refuse to accept the franchise dealer model as an excuse to deliver shitty service. <laughs> um, I mean, GM has, look, a lot of stuff that Tesla has done was originated with, with folks like Saturn. So yeah. there is nothing about what Tesla does from a retail perspective that others couldn't do. And I, I mean, I hear this a lot and it's a conversation I keep pushing back on because from the any franchise automakers, what we hear a lot is, well, we can't control what our franchises do. And like, we have it so hard. And at the same time, the OEMs are the ones that write all the training, including the ones for plug-in hybrids that don't mention the plug. 
and that used to take three days but now take two hours and are only online and the qualities decline quite a bit. And all of the research into these things shows remarkably that that which salespeople are not comfortable with, they will not sell very well. Right. It's a shock. <laughs> and that which they have never really experienced, they're not going to be very comfortable selling and on and on. So Tesla's secret sauce for, from the retail sales perspective is really well-trained salespeople who are passionate about their product in a low-pressure sales environment. That's kind of it. There's nothing else about the fact that Elon signs the checks that right. means that anyone else couldn't replicate that. And there are some individual franchise dealers of different brands and sometimes conglomerates of dealers that do some of those things, whether it's single pricing, no haggle, low pressure, good training, like all of those things can be replicated. And so therefore, there's nothing about the traditional automakers and their franchise system that I accept precludes them from providing a better experience than they do today. Well, and one of the things, I completely agree. One of the things that really, uh, I forget how long ago I learned this, and it totally makes sense, but years ago when I realized this is actually kind of an American problem, like in a lot of other countries, dealer or manufacturers sell direct. And yes and no. I think, I mean, it, de I think it depends on their brand a bit. Um, I, I believe that's kind of the case with Ford where they do have more of a dealership model globally, but like Daimler uh, or Mercedes in a lot of countries just sells direct or they have their own uh, essentially employees who are selling it in Europe. Right. Um, yeah. We're, I don't know. I, I've just found that always kind of interesting. I mean, and I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, there's still the distributorship system and I, and that plays out differently around the world. Um, in Norway, for example, it's not it's very much distributorship. There is no native car building there. No native. Yeah. <laughs> but the way, one of the keys to their success, all the incentives get all the focus, but an interesting thing that happened there is that the, the EV association struck a deal with all of the franchise auto manufacturers, the dealers, and basically made the dealers pay them 25 bucks for every EV they sold. And therefore now, every EV comes with a new driver car kit on the passenger seat when you buy a new EV. It's got the fob that works with all the chargers. It's got the FAQ thing. It's got the, a year-long membership to a nine-to-five Monday through Friday office to answer all of the newbie questions. It's got a bunch of things that provide value to the new driver. It takes a bunch of weight off the dealers, which is why I love it. They're like, sure, 25 bucks, here you go. <laughs> we'll yeah. do that. And it helps the driver association, A, go forward, but provide the more valuable service to the drivers. And so even in those types of scenarios, it's not that it's not native franchise versus distributor or whatever else. It's that they still had to come up with a solution. In New Zealand, it's a similar model, distributorship. And some of the normal branded dealers sell some cars, but there it's a 70, 75% used car market imports and used lightly used import dealers have cropped up around EVs. And there's a small handful of very well-known ones that provide spectacular service of the types we would recommend <laughs> that do those sorts of things and therefore have become known for that and have created their own brands around it. So yes, there is some variation per country depending on their native culture and sort of the, the, how business tends to happen there, but it's not so cut and dried as we think of it until you go to some of those places and go, all right, what are you dealing with that's unique? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, okay. So now that we've also solved the dealership issue globally, I think we've kind of, we have addressed it kind of off and on, but then the charging networks. Yeah. Uh, that was, I think, and Rivian starting to copy the the Tesla model, where it is kind of like on the sort OEM. of, sort yeah. of, sort of. I'm not. I'm just saying it is. It is another uh, manufacturer, and that seems to be more common with a lot of these newer startup ones, where they they see the the value and the onus, and kind of having their own charging infrastructure. I think the difference is they're using the uh, CS. I always forget the yes. CSS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, standard versus something proprietary. Do you? Right. Do you think that there's, is it going to be like, does it have to be, do the OEMs really have to step up more into infrastructure or is that not an actual problem? Charging. Um, I would like to see automakers. Some automakers have stepped up a fair amount. I mean, in fairness, Nissan spent as much in the early years as Tesla ever did mm -hmm. and didn't get credit for it for a variety of reasons, some of which is because of their own skin knees, but also just the brand strength. I do not want to see lots of other automakers develop their own networks. That's right. not useful in the grand scheme. <laughs> One did it, but we should not encourage 18 individual brands that are all walled gardens. And I like the trend towards a couple of standards. I don't care if it's the Tesla standard. It just, we can't have four or five of them going forward and, and all of that. Rivian is approaching me. I want to do some national parksy kinds of things. Mostly I want to see some locations that appeal to our adventurers that may not exist otherwise. I don't mind that philosophy. I can think of potentially more effective ways to accomplish that. <laughs> but certainly whether it is sponsoring other major networks or like in Europe, starting their own Ionity, the automakers probably do need to get much more involved in this notion of we didn't have to do gas stations, therefore we shouldn't have to be held responsible for any of this. I get it, but also too damn bad. <laughs> but it seems like there's so much value in that data, just like kind of finding out where these opportunities are to improve that experience. And I don't know. But for sure. Yes. All yeah. things data are a whole nother interesting nerdy conversation in terms of who owns what and how it's used and what's collected. But there's a huge amount of compromise that's made in automatically handing off all of your customers to these third parties for an experience of fueling the car that you made, especially as none of those third parties are really leading either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some are bigger than others, but at the end of the day, not a single one of the major networks today is really focused on the user experience. And until that happens, none of them are going to be terribly successful. And they all hate it when I say it, but none of them can really deny it either. It's all about the site holders or the subscription buyers from automakers or the grant holders from CEC or CARB or whoever else that are handing, or, or utilities that are handing them public money. The business model to date has been hand us a bunch of public money in some form, rate payer, taxpayer, whatever, and we'll put some charging in the ground, not what's going to best serve the people that we intend to have use these vehicles, whether they're bolts or semis. And do you think that's wholly company culture? I think it's because they haven't had to. Gotcha. I mean, so, some company cultures are different than others, but I can think of a couple companies that are completely opposite ends of the cultural pole, you know, pole but kind of similar business approaches in the end. And this, is, this technology is one that we're still very much in the early adopter stage. I hear so much. I don't care about your early people. I care about mainstream. 
but we're still heading into 2% nationwide. Right. Early adopters go to 13.5% or something like that. We're going to be there for a while. And I would like to see mainstream too, but if we don't do right by the early folks, we will never see mainstream and neither will they. <laughs> I, I, I think you're completely right. And that kind of leads to, uh, once again, the who killed the electric car. And when they're talking about the original proposals, they were saying that by 2003, the goal of CARB would have 10% of dr- yeah. new cars be EVs. Yeah. Uh, which is just wild to think about. has hit that in a few months, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, since we're, we've kind of just passed the hour mark, I do have one final question. And with that documentary, it does end, I think I know the answer, but it does end with you saying, as the car is being more or less crushed, that back in 2003, it says you are optimistic about the future of electric vehicles. And since that's happened and with everything in your career, would you say you're still optimistic about the future of electric vehicles? I am. Um, I am optimistic and in some ways I couldn't still do this work after 25 years if I wasn't. Like, I don't know how someone psychologically could do that. Uh, I, I have my occasional moments of burnout, but I'm very lucky that they tend not to last very long and I find fortitude in small things and among people. So yes, I'm very optimistic. I'm also realistic because I get accused of being a pessimist all the time because I'm the one with the cautionary tales and advising against complacency and all that. Optimism is not the same as naive. I am optimistic, but I am not naive. (laughs) And I'm the one that will continue to challenge certain points of view and try to nudge everything forward because I, I see that potential and that's where the optimism comes from. But my patience for wasting time and money and repeating the same mistakes over and over again is getting thinner as I get older. (laughs) So there's a balance there. And it's really good thing to see all the new blood that's coming into our industry. That's, I mean, it's fascinating in some ways, but it's also very, very welcome. I also see, you know, some, there's still a need to to listen to some of the veterans and learn from the skinnies to avoid doing some of the same things again. So it's very much in a variety of ways, everyone pushing toward the middle. (laughs) Right. Well, that's, that's great to hear that you have done so much and you're still so passionate about it. And I know there's going to be a lot that you do contribute to this. So I just want to say- I'm just really stubborn. Y'all are stubborn. <laughs> and maybe that's what you kind of have to be, to be an a EV fan. But I, I do want to say thank you for your time. And for thank people you. who are interested in learning more about you or kind of things you're working on, the best is checking out probably Fully Charged and then your EV Chels on Twitter. Well, go watch Fully Charged for everybody else besides me because all the other hosts <laughs> are brilliant. Um, I am Evie Chels everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, probably eviechels.com will route somewhere <laughs> to a blog I occasionally write to. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that hard to find. Well, great. I just want to say one more time, thank you, Chelsea. This has been super fascinating and, and just hearing the experience and history of how you've been so involved with this is, is really great. So thank you thank so you much. Guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit our website, connectingthegrid.com. There you can listen to our podcasts, contact us about sponsorship, or even be a guest on Grid Connections. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on your favorite podcast streaming service. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Thanks again, and I look forward to us learning more together soon.